You can sit. Well, once again, good morning, especially to you at home. We're glad that you're here. Uh, as has been mentioned already, today is Christ the King Sunday. It is the last day in the church year. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the church year, it is a way of ordering time a way that celebrates God's presence in our lives uh, beyond simple calendars and weeks and days. And so we have seasons of feasting, seasons of fasting. And today we're uh, in the equivalent of December 31st in the church year. And Christ the King Sunday is uh, the day we use to mark this day. And it's an opportunity for us to think about the year, the year that's gone by and the year that is ahead. And as we often do at December 31st, we reflect. We reflect on things that guide our lives. Uh, who or what is king? Who or what is queen to determine what we do with ourselves, our time, our resources? So Christ the King Sunday is a chance for us to think about these things. Our text today is actually from the Revised Common Lectionary. And that is a cycle of readings from the Old New Testament which uh, guide us as we go through the church here. And today our gospel lesson is from the Revised Common Lectionary. It's a familiar passage, and let me give some context and then we'll read it together. As many of you know, Jesus is at this point in John's gospel at the end of his uh, earthly ministry. He has celebrated the Lord's Supper, uh, Thursday night of Holy Week. He has gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been betrayed by Judas. His disciples have fled. He has been arrested, brought before Annas and Caiaphas, the Jewish high priests. And now he's being brought before Pontius Pilate, whose name we just shared about in the Apostles' Creed. Pontius Pilate is the prefect uh, of the Roman government who are occupying Palestine. And Pilate has Caesar's power. He is Caesar's eyes. So Jesus now is before Pilate and we are looking at John 18, beginning at verse 33. Let's take a look. Pontius Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it? You have done. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. O oh God, you who by your spirit inspired John to write these words, now would you illuminate the preaching and the listening of these words. May these words become for us the very word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think it's fair to say that we as Americans have a very ambivalent relationship with kingship. 
Think about it. Our country began in reaction to a king, this particular one, King George III. There he is in all his finery. But it was our early uh, country's forebears that reacted against his rule and reign, and we have our country now uh, as a result. We, we are suspicious of kings, and that runs deep in our psyche. But we also are fascinated with power. Power uh, allures us. And we don't have kings, but we have a system of government where if we're not careful, presidents can rise too high. And so we have a check and a balance in our Congress and in our Supreme Court. But we are allured by power. And power draws us through uh, pop figures. I mean, why else would it be important that Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson are now dating? I mean, who really cares? But we seem to. Uh, sports figures, rock stars, rap artists, all the above. These are powerful people who form for us an alluring attraction of kingship in its own way. Power allures the human person. And this was certainly true in first century Palestine. In first century Palestine, the Jews wanted a king. They wanted a Messiah, an anointed one. And they had all kinds of different expectations. They wanted, above all, this king to come and deliver them from Roman rule. They wanted independence. And uh, the Pharisees wanted a king who would uh, lead the people in righteousness and Torah observance. They wanted a religious leader. The Sadducees, the ruling elite, the aristocracy who, who ran the temple in Jerusalem, they wanted someone to preserve their nobility and their power in Jerusalem. The zealots, the zealots wanted a revolutionary leader, a guerrilla war figure to lead them. And then down on the shores of the Dead Sea, the Essenes, the monastic community, wanted an apocalyptic ruler to come and in end times glory deliver Israel from all its enemies supernaturally. Messianic expectation was in the air at the time of Jesus. And Jesus came before Pilate and Pilate knew all this and he had this dialogue. As he represents Caesar, Pilate wants to know if Jesus is a king. Because remember, he is the eyes of Caesar to make sure no kings rise up. Jesus, in response, makes clear that his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is from another place. His kingdom is not about military might. His kingdom is not about political power. His kingdom is a means to testify to truth, God's truth. And as a reward for this kingdom, Jesus gets a mock coronation. Not veneration, but flogging. Not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. Purple robe for ridicule. Soldiers' jeers. Spittle anoints him. And Jesus makes clear that it is heaven, not Pilate, who holds ultimate power. And the pious people around Jesus... They cynically confess later in our chapter, we have no king but Caesar. Today we think about Christ's kingship and we consider the ways it challenges us, the way it informs us. And so we're going to look at four aspects of Christ's kingship. And here's the first. Christ's kingship is characterized by, number one, obscurity, not fame. Obscurity, not fame. We are so anesthetized to the power of Christmas by all the trappings, by all the decorations, that we miss this year after year. 
Jesus came into our world in an obscure way. He was born in a manger, a feeding trough. He was attended to by smelly shepherds, the lowest of the classes of Israel. He was then raised and he came into adulthood in Galilee. And if you want to be important, you don't do that in Galilee of all places. My goodness, no. Galilee is the backwoods of Israel. This is where nobody of power would ever want to stem from. Jesus was characterized in his kingship by obscurity, not fame, and how much this challenges us. Jesus was characterized in his kingship by a second thing, and that's poverty, not fortune. Poverty, not fortune. Luke captures this for us in his gospel chapter 2. You may recall that after Jesus was born, the Holy Family went to Jerusalem, and there they presented an offering for their purification, Mary's purification. Uh, she had gone through the 30 days of cleansing, and now to be restored into a ritual purity, she had to make an offering. Now, typically, most Israelite women, most Jewish women, would have offered a lamb. But the provision in Leviticus had a, a, an item that poor people could use, and that was a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. And this is what Mary and Joseph offer. They are poor people. Jesus was born in poverty, not in riches. And this ought to shake us up a bit, don't you think? Jesus, the Son of God from all eternity, owned everything. But in his earthly ministry, he borrowed everything. Think about it. He had to borrow his birthplace, a cave in Bethlehem. He had to borrow his cradle, a manger. He had to borrow a home in which to live. We have no record that Jesus ever owned a home. He either slept in people's homes or he slept outside. Jesus had to borrow a boat from which to teach his disciples. Jesus had to borrow a donkey with which to ride into Jerusalem. Jesus had to borrow a room for the Last Supper. And Jesus had to borrow a tomb in which to be buried. Jesus' kingship was characterized by poverty, not fortune. And then there was a third thing. Jesus' kingship was characterized by infirmity. Infirmity, weakness, not power. Think about that. I shared with you two weeks when I last preached that uh, we've had some rough news in our family. My mother's been diagnosed with stage four cancer, as I shared with you then, and many of you have asked about that. Last week, I went down to Riverside, California to be with my mom and dad. And um, it was a hard visit. I'm really glad I went, but it was tough. Uh, mom is worse off than I thought, and dad is exhausted caring for her. Uh, mom, uh, just recently with my sister guiding them, my sister's with them. She's a retired uh, hospice nurse and now a therapist in California. With her guidance and, and my contributions, we've decided as a family, mom is going into hospice, and it started yesterday. Um, it's been hard. It's been really hard. But this next text has been helping me. It reminds me that Jesus is familiar with infirmity. Take a look at it. We're looking here at Isaiah chapter 53. Do you know that Isaiah 53 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament? Now, there's a reason for this. It's because the New Testament writer saw Jesus in this ancient text. Let's see if you can see him too. In this servant song in Isaiah, so famous for Good Friday, for example, we read this. He, the servant of Yahweh, the Lord, he was despised and rejected by others, 
a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. I don't know about you, but this is what this text does for me. It reminds me that my Savior Jesus understands. He understands the weakness my mother's going through, our family's going through. He is not distant in our suffering. He is with us. He's with you. And so Jesus, in his infirmity, identifies with us in our infirmity and how grateful we can be. This is our source of encouragement and strength. Earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 6, we read that Jesus uh, was almost taken by the crowds and forced to become king. But Jesus slipped away because he refused it. Jesus doesn't want worldly power in his kingship. Doesn't want it then, doesn't want it now. Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It's against this world. It's a challenge to this world. And this is a reminder to us. So three things we've looked at. The kingship of Christ is characterized by obscurity, not fame. Poverty, not fortune. Infirmity, not power. And then humility, not pride. You know, one of the favorite verses that many of us have in the whole New Testament has got to be Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. I bet a lot of you have memorized it. I know I have. Uh, Jesus says so famously, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' kingship is characterized by humility, low-lyingness, not pride. We recall this when we think of Palm Sunday, don't we? Palm Sunday, the messianic expectation of Jerusalem in that day, they wanted their Messiah to come riding into Jerusalem on a white stallion. But Jesus chooses a donkey. Isn't that something? Jesus' kingship is characterized by humility, not by pride. Some of you know that when I graduated from college, I spent a year working at a Christian institute in London. And I worshipped at All Souls Church Langham Place. This is where John Stott was rector. And every Sunday, we would worship actually in the morning, and then we'd come back in the late afternoon. And when we entered All Souls and sat in the pews, this is what we looked at, a famous picture. You have a part of it on your bulletins today. It's painted in the 1820s, presented to All Souls Church by King Henry IV. And it's called Ecce Homo. It's the Latin term that Pilate uses when he says to the Jewish leaders, behold the man. And this is larger than life in that sanctuary. Can you imagine if that's right up here and every Sunday throughout your lives, you came to the church and you stared at this. Think about how that would form you as a disciple. Think about how that Christ kingship here would shape you. You would see him with a crown of thorns, being mocked and humiliated And yet there's a regal bearing to him. This is your king. And this shapes a people as they gather and worship. So we can reflect with not only this picture in mind, but our scripture today, 
How does Christ's kingship challenge us? How does his kingship challenge us? I want to offer four thoughts. The first is, it challenges us in our ambition. It's so interesting to me that in the United States, we in our American psyche, we uh, believe that ambition is always good. Well, of course it is. Why wouldn't we want to be ambitious? But when I lived abroad in England, I got to know some Australians. And the Australians have an interesting saying. They say this, the tall poppies get lopped off. Now, what do they mean by that? They mean, don't try to exalt yourself because you're only going to be cut down. And so there's a sense of humility among the Australians. The tall poppies get lopped off. It's a check on rampant ambition. Some of you have heard that saying, perhaps, that someone once uttered, they said, I got to the top of the ladder only to realize it was leaning against the wrong wall. That can be us. We get to the top of the ladder unthinkingly moving ahead with promotions and other things only to realize that it's on the wrong wall. That our ambition isn't always a good thing. We're checked by Jesus' example to look at, to re-examine our ambition. Christ's kingship challenges us in a second way, and that's power. Here too, we think that more power is better, less power is worse, and that needs to be checked. And in the 1970s, there was a famous business leadership book called Servant Leadership. It was written by Robert K. Greenleaf. Servant Leadership. And it revolutionized, at least for a time, business philosophy. His point was that if you want, as a leader, a CEO, to lead, you must be a a good servant of all. And there's a quote. Good leaders must first become good servants. And of course, Robert Greenleaf didn't invent this. Jesus Christ did in the Gospels. Jesus said, if any of you wish to become great, you must become servant. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others and offer his life as a ransom for many. Power needs to be checked. And I'm so concerned, and I know others are too, about Christian nationalism in our country right now. This push right now to to glean power politically in the country and to use secular means to exalt the church. And I think that's a, a big mistake. We need to be very careful with that. Power is checked by the example of Jesus. We must use it differently. I ran across a tweet. You know, I do do Twitter. I don't know if some of you do, but I had a tweet the other day that I thought was really good and I wanted to share it with you. It's from a fellow pastor, a fellow named Reverend Ben Kramer, and he, he shared this tweet. Dear Christians, he wrote, our symbol is a cross, not a flag, not a gun, not a gavel, not bootstraps, not a legislator's pen. The cross is how Jesus exercised ultimate power in the world by laying down his life out of love for all. That is why our symbol is a cross. So important for us to remind ourselves of. Christ's kingship challenges us with ambition, with regard to power. And then a third thing, consumption. Consumption, our consumer bent, that is also so much a part of our culture, so much a part of our lives. We've all heard the saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. We're now about to enter a season of consumption of consumerism. Black Friday is uh, coming up November 26th. 
Cyber Monday follows it, November 29th. And we are tempted, aren't we, to just indulge and to consume, consume, consume. And we need the reminder of Jesus who had very little to check that intention. John Ortberg wrote a book, John Ortberg, the former pastor of Menlo Church in California. It's this book, When the Game is Over, the title goes, it all goes back in the box. Of course, he's referring to life. When the game of life is over, all that we've accumulated, all that we've consumed, all those riches that we've collected, it all goes back in the box, the coffin. It's buried with us. Billy Graham observed with this quotation, we are rich in the things that perish, but poor in the things of the spirit. We are rich in gadgets, but poor in faith. We are rich in goods, but poor in grace. We are rich in know-how, but poor in character. We are rich in words, but poor in deeds. Wow. That's a challenge, isn't it? Jesus' kingship challenges us with respect to ambition and power and consumption and also our reputation and role in Boulder. When I came to this church almost 20 years ago, many of you will recall we were twice this size, 2,200 members. And we were the going church in Boulder County. And we, we had prominence and we had prestige as a congregation. And a lot of that has changed over the years. And some lament that, and I'm not sure I do. Because I actually like our church better in some ways. We're humbler, we're, we're simpler, we're more focused. And I think that Jesus Christ can... can can guide us more clearly when these things are, are cleared away. We're no longer a country club church if we ever were one in the first place. We are humpler. And it's now status that's not so important, and it is service that we focus on. Uh, this is a good thing. Jesus' kingship challenges us with regard to ambition and power and consumption and reputation and role. There's a quote by Donald Craybill who wrote a most interesting book, It's called The Upside-Down Kingdom. And Craybill says this, Kingdom values challenge the taken-for-granted social ruts and sometimes run against the dominant cultural grain. Jesus presents the kingdom as a new order breaking in upon and overturning old ways, old values, old assumptions. Think of Jesus today, folks. He was conceived in scandal, cradled in a manger, warmed by smelly animals, welcomed by dirty shepherds, fled with his family as a refugee to Egypt. He was apprenticed as a blue-collar worker in backward Galilee. He was baptized with sinners in the Jordan River. He touched lepers, ate with outcasts, welcomed wayward women, befriended, despised Samaritans, confronted the religious elite, spoke truth to power, hugged children, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was betrayed by his friend, abandoned by his disciples, rejected by his people. He was scourged and spit upon, scorned and mocked, nailed naked to a cross. There he suffocated and bled out in a scandalous, shameful death reserved for criminals and revolutionaries. His crown was thorns, his throne a cross, his grave a borrowed tomb. As Pilate said to the Jews then, and scripture says to us now, here is your king. 
Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we are challenged by your example. We are humbled by it. We are corrected and chastened by it. And we would long to be more in alignment with you. But even as we pray for this, we're terrified. Because it sounds so uncomfortable, to say the least. We pray for courage and we pray for strength. We pray for faith, to trust in your goodness as you draw us into closer communion with you and with each other. In your name we pray. Amen.